0: Or send an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, is in the house. If you've got a question, grab one of these open phone lines. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada... Your number is 1-205-271-2985, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985, and you can always send us an email. That email address is at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson, handling our social media efforts, So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host to see us every Friday, the aforementioned Colin Donovan. How are you?
2: Doing pretty good.
1: You know, we've we've kind of gotten off on topics of late and haven't really done a lot of emails in the first segment, so I thought it might be a good idea to catch up on some of those.
2: Sounds like a plan. Uh,
1: Basil writes in, is it permissible for Catholics to read the apocryphal Gospels?
2: I think in the early church, some of these were reverenced, uh, although ultimately the church chose not to give them I- any authority. So we can read literature, which is not morally dangerous to us. And I think uh, for a point of view of study and interest, one could read the Apocryphal Gospels, uh, some of the, like the names of uh, the parents of uh, Our Lady, are given in the uh, apocryphal uh, writing Gospel of Saint James, um, the Proto Evangelium of James. The Church doesn't attribute any authority to it, so you can't take that in the same way that reading the uh, reading the Gospels. And I think when you look at something like the names of Joachim and Anna for the parents of Our Lady, it would be easy to conceive that some of the things in the apocryphal writings are there by fiction but it could also be and is likely the case since they were never challenged that some things are there by way of history known commonly and inserted into the gospel for that reason there are other things in them that uh, seem fanciful and those fanciful departures from (laughs) the seriousness of the gospels are also not just for the apocryphal writings but also for private revelation often considered a negative in terms of uh, you know whether it's uh, credible or not and i think that same logic is you know going there when you you know read i think it's in the Proto evangelium of james of our lord you know the bird falling to the ground in our lord resurrecting it bringing it back to life this this doesn't accord with the seriousness of the communication of the gospel so it's many of those kinds of things which have to be taken with a proverbial <clears throat> grain of salt or maybe a teaspoon even um, but in and of themselves, if we have that understanding, uh, it is certainly, you know, something could see, oh, well, what what are in these? Uh, being careful on these all these ways I've mentioned.
1: And all of our listeners that have an ornithological bent, you can direct your emails to Colin Donovan, our vice president of theology. <laughs> <laughs> Suggesting that birds are not important enough to be in the gospel. Um, We've got an anonymous email here, and this is a sentiment that I think is shared by by more than a few people. Why won't God speak to me in dreams or let me talk with my guardian angel? I have questions, the Bible and the church don't answer, and the Blessed Sacrament is silent, and basically God won't talk to me beyond the Bible.
2: Well, it's for your own good. (laughs) That's why... Uh, the whole history of church teaching and pastoral practice on this and certainly reflected in uh, the formal decisions of the church regarding, say, private revelations, which we just mentioned in passing, that something is, is it from God? Is it from the human spirit? We all have imaginations and memories. Uh, They can concoct a lot of things which are fictional, Or is it from the demonic spirit? So those three spirits are avenues of, or sources, if you will, fonts of what might come into our imagination, awake or sleeping or praying, thinking we're talking to angels uh, or Mary or Jesus. The church discerns those things when they're of the character that require that. uh, And the great saints have written uh, such writings regarding their uh, prayerful reflections and claimed revelations. Uh, And the church evaluates those uh, on those three grounds and determines that they're credible of belief of a supernatural origin. Trusting in your dreams or your own thought processes do not have such a guarantee, which makes us subject, obviously, to our own human spirit. We can, you know, we can fool ourselves rather easily, but also to the other more malevolent spirit who is happy to fool us uh, for his purposes. And so that's why we're forbidden to do it. We have it in, uh, in the commandments uh, that we're forbidden to do it. Uh, the church, in her explanations in the catechism of the, the first commandment, includes among that divination. So an example of divination was Saul, who wanted to speak to the prophet Samuel, who was dead, and he which went to the so-called witch or medium of Endor and said, Well, bring up Samuel for him. I need to ask him a question in my distress. Totally forget forbidden, uh, and so to seek uh, to to seek the help of your guardian angel in that way, and asking him to reveal special knowledge to you, or the angels, or the saints, or God Himself. This is filled with uh, those dangers, uh, and it's also prohibited uh, by the Church and by the commandments for good reason, for the good of souls.
1: Got an email here from Deirdre, uh, Colin, and she says, I was watching a video by an exorcist. He said, if you are not in a state of grace, God does not hear your prayers is this true? Unfortunately, the only way for me to return to a state of grace would be to divorce my husband of 19 years. He refuses to get an annulment of his first marriage. I should mention, we have two teenagers. I now feel it's not worth trying to say the rosary daily or go to Mass or receive a spiritual communion. I would like an answer to this question, if possible. Thank you for taking time to respond.
2: Sure. I I think he's talking at the level of, do we have a right to God? to hear our prayers and to answer them Uh, we are all members of societies we're members of a family so for example so we have rights to ask things of our parents uh, and when adults of you know to decide between spouses for example a course of action Uh, these things come with nature and in supernature we have the church in the same way we have certain rights uh, and of course with God as, uh, as in simply in the natural order, we have a right to you know to, to seek Him and to do all that is seeking Him. The question is, if one knows one is in the you know, state of mortal sin and living in a sinful state, uh, then we should be seeking the means to to get out of that state and praying for that. We are not in a condition where God has any, obligation to do that but he has an obligation which he places on himself he loves you and more than you want that yourself he wants that so he's disposed to do it for you despite the fact that in the state of grace your prayer has no particular merit before god it has the merit of a child of god but he is he is already a loving father and wants to help you And I think if you keep that fixed in your mind and think of that, the mercy and the goodness of God, rather than your own merit and whether you yourself are worthy or whether he is actually hearing you, there's no question he hears you. But his answer will come in his own way, in his own time, in the way that is best for you, and his first answer will be to get you back into his you know, stay into the state of grace, and that's where he will want to move you. Set that as your goal, and don't worry about the, uh, you might say, the supernatural sufficiency and value of your prayer. Just be insistent and work towards that and ask for the graces to be able to effect it. Given your situation, that's a hard hill to climb, uh, but you have to climb it in some way and and get your marriage situation resolved.
1: And I think she may have... Some recourses that are, you know, not as ple not you know not necessarily pleasant, but you know, I think she may be um, erroneously assuming that divorce is the only thing that will bring her into a state of grace.
2: That's true, and for this, you need good pastoral guidance from a, a priest who is faithful and uh, will uh, deal with this in a way faithful to the mind of the church. Uh, and there are there are remedies uh, for that, uh, but uh, obviously one of them would be to determine, you know, exactly what is the worldly pathway, the canonical pathway to resolving your situation. You'd have to talk to somebody in the diocese to discover that.
1: Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: Great item available at EWTN's Religious Catalog, the St. Christopher Visor Clip and Auto Rosary. It's a pewter St. Christopher Visor Clip that will clip right onto the visor in your car. And an auto rosary set that makes an ideal gift for your loved ones in their daily commutes as well as extended road trips. The St. Christopher Visor Clip is inscribed with the motorist's prayer. That reads, Lord, grant me a steady hand and watchful eye that no man may be hurt when I pass by. And since traveling in the car is a great time to pray, the clip comes with a matching auto rosary featuring clear beads and the St. Christopher medal. It's all made right here in the United States. And it's available now at EWTNRC.com, where they're offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. That is standard shipping. In the U.S. only, the continental U.S. only, use code FREE at checkout. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. First up today is Robert in San Antonio, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Robert, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, good afternoon.
3: Any of those you want to ask Colin has he read The Catholic Sanctuary and the Second Vatican Council by Michael Davies? And uh, I just want to make sure that's all factual in there, and if it is, I want to, you know, take it
2: and mm-hmm.
3: show it to my relatives and friends and so forth. Yeah. I was very impressed by it.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know anything more than what I'm able to quickly read on Amazon in the description. Uh, Michael Davies uh, is is someone I'm familiar with. Uh, He was very attached to the traditional Latin Mass, uh, very much against the liturgical reform, and I gather from the title that it discusses that. Um, And so, you know, from that point of view, it may have historically uh, valid information. Uh, Unfortunately, and I think this is becoming more of a problem than it was, uh, there is a certain mind... That mistakes. Yeah, it's it, it's an interesting thesis that the council, what the council decreed, was not followed afterwards. I'm not sure what to make of the argument when, in terms of the the primacy of the pope, a council doesn't act without a pope, and a pope can act without a council. So. We have a we have a trouble problem in the church that we have people today arguing over the Vatican Council and its meaning. When the interpreter of that certainly there is historically there is a progression you know in the understanding of that, but in the details, ultimately falls to the Pope who is who is currently reigning, as it did to Paul VI, as it did briefly to John Paul I, to John Paul II for twenty six years. For Benedict the 13th, or Benedict the the 16th, 16th, or the 16th either. (laughs) Well, I like Benedict the 13th, so I'm a little bit uh, attached there. Benedict the 16th, for his eight years, and now to Francis, and whoever comes next. So the application and interpretation of that may be an interesting historical issue, but the authority lines are clear. And there's a tendency today to absolutize intellectual opinions about mistakes that were made and directions to go in the future rather than, you know, recognizing as in Jesus' day, they said of him, the Pharisees were the theologians and the canonists and the intellectuals of Uh, Of the Israelites the Sadducees were the you know, the more laid-back guys. We're gonna go with you know, Rome's here We'll deal with that. You know, we'll follow along in every which way So we almost have the two the two polarities of of most societies over history in the Sadducees and the Pharisees and what people noted was Jesus didn't teach like the Pharisees Based out of an intellectual and so he taught with authority and so our faith depends on the authority christ gave the church and has passed down in the church yes intellectually we can say this was not a more this was not a prudent decision that was not a prudent decision you know this was maybe you know a false understanding of something of the past or or, or whatever it was but in the end we're back with who speaks with authority here and it is the the re- current pope and the college of bishops who represent the apostles to, collectively So, as I said, it's an intellectual exercise. These books might give information, but I'm wondering, do they disturb the heart of the Catholic and get them all worked up about what is truly central in the faith, or do they help? Now, undoubtedly, the mass is central in the faith of Catholics. The validity of the mass is not at question. The mass is valid. Uh, it's guaranteed by the authority of the church. So, yes, uh, it, but that point of view is not something that I can recommend or promote, uh, And although there may be something intellectually, historically, to get out of it. Um, but I think that it is a dangerous fashion for the church today uh, because it tends against the communion of the whole uh, in some respects, uh, although it also has legitimate things to say about the history as well so those are the two values uh that have to be weighed i think in reading things written in probably in the 60s if i'm 60s and 70s if i'm not mistaken uh we've moved on a little bit from there for the good or the worst uh, uh, is certainly an argument that could be made
1: 833-288-ewtn is our toll-free number Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. 288 John would like to know if you could explain the meaning of the Scripture passage where Noah's son sees Noah naked.
2: Yeah, I think that comes from the, uh, again, we're sort of on a authority, authority kick here, um, the respect, the deference we should have for our fathers and for our mothers, for that matter. Honor your father and mother. And so, in the natural order, this is an obligation. And so the explanation is usually that he did, does not, and I think the passage even gives us this, so as not to expose his father's shame. This is, by the understanding of many, the, you know, the, maybe the first occasion of drunkenness among the uh, what would and become the Israelites, the Jewish people, uh, eventually. And so, therefore, uh, and the human race, indeed, from the benefits of the wine and the, the negative things that the wine can produce, so it was to protect the honor of his father, so as not to uncover his, you know, his sin, if you will, probably an unwitting one, if he'd never uh, experienced the effect of uh, fermented grapes before. So that's the way it's generally understood, to uh, deference for his honor.
1: Alex wants to know if you're aware of any non-Greek or non-Latin-speaking church fathers.
2: Um, that's a good question. In the Mediterranean Basin, they're probably largely in those two languages. Now, what they may have spoke, but what they would have written in would be the languages that would have had the most you know, reading and readability, and I think that would be Greek or Latin. Uh I think, uh, I'm not sure if uh, St. Ephraim the Syrian wrote, he may have written in some, uh, in Chaldean, uh, as some of the books are also of, of the apocryphal books, as the Protestants call them, the deuterocanonicals as we do, uh, and some portions of other books that are in the canon were written uh, in Chaldean, it may be that some of those. But I can't I can't speak with authority in that, but I suspect some of the Syrians, for example, like Syria Uh, St. Ephraim uh, probably wrote uh, also in their Syriac.
1: 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. A couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. Angie is in the Bronx, New York, and um, she's listening to EWTN Radio today. Angie, you are on with Colin Donovan.
4: Uh, yes, uh, I I was wondering how it was made possible for people, two people to get married in their own faith. My niece married a Jewish man in the Catholic Church. She kept her faith, and he kept his faith. They got married in their own faith. He's Jewish, and she's Catholic, and she's bringing up her children in the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand that.
2: Yeah. Um, well, because the Church has a preference for... Catholics marrying Catholics. But it gives dispensations, which in a nation like the United States, where, you know, we represent, I think the latest number is 22, 23 percent of the population. uh, Obviously, you can't necessarily, you know, control every situation. And so, you know, men and women of different faiths fall in love and want to get married. So, it has always been possible to di- get a dispensation, dispensation from, the, from the, to marry a non-Catholic, for example, and dispensation, what is called disparity of cult. And that means that Jewish worship versus Christian worship, for example. So to be married in the church would require that the, the bishop of the place would grant that dis, uh, dispensation for a Catholic uh, to marry uh, a, a Jewish woman or vice Catholic man, Jewish uh, woman, or vice versa. So, given that dispensation, now historically, there was an obligation that the non-Catholic party had to uh, commit and even sign a document that they would allow uh... the catholic party to raise their children in the faith they don't have to do that anymore but there is uh, essentially a promise to uh... The, the, the catholic party would make to do whatever is possible to raise their children in the faith uh, So, typically i think you would find there may be some cases where that promise is not kept but i think in most cases the catholic party would be seeking uh, seeking to, to to satisfy that uh so uh it's probably not kosher that's a jewish term for uh rightly ordered religious practice particularly regarding eating Uh, but it is uh, permitted by the church to have a mixed marriage of catholics and protestants but also uh dispensation from this disparity of cult as it's called
1: eight three three two eight eight e w t n that's our toll free number it's a free telephone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. A couple of open phone lines for you and all kinds of time for your calls. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 205 271 2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. That's openline, all one word, at ewtn.com. 833 288. EWTN's our toll free number. Colin Donovan is in the house on EWTN's Open Line Friday.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. One line open at 833-288-3986. We head next to Two Harbors, Minnesota. Judy is listening on Real Presence Radio. Judy, you are on with Colin Donovan.
4: Hello. Thank you for taking my call.
2: You're welcome. Um,
4: my My question is, I went to confession last week on a Saturday, and uh, when I was done, the priest asked me if I was going to mass on Sunday, and which I thought was funny. But anyway, I said yes, I am, and and he said, "Well, that's your penance." <laughs> and i i I was <laughs> I was totally confused because to me, mass is a privilege and honor, you know it is certainly not a penance but was there something deeper
2: do you think that he was trying to tell me here uh i don't know you'd have to interrogate him on that one but it sounds
1: to me like he's gotten far too used to people not going to mass on sunday
2: i it might be that <laughs> you know if if you uh, and i'm not asking for an answer here but <laughs> theoretically let's say somebody you uh, you know father i not just can't seem to get to mass on sunday I always have things i have to do that would be a good penance. I could see possibly that. Um, well, I, I can't, can't speak to the sufficiency of that penance other than, uh, you know, you're being obedient and you're doing it, but you would have done that anyway, so I guess you're killing two birds with one stone. You're satisfying, one, your Mass obligation to Sunday Mass, which is an obligation uh, for all Catholics uh, when possible, absolutely, and also uh, you're doing your penance. But uh, it's an unusual penance, to be sure.
1: i tell you what I would do, Judy, if I were in your situation. When I got to Mass on Sunday, I would kneel down, and I would say as an additional penance for my last confession, I'm going to say an Our Father, a Hail Mary, and a Glory Be for that priest.
2: Uh, you could you could certainly do that, but you wouldn't be obliged to do it.
1: Does that help, Judy, at all? Yes,
4: yeah. yes, yeah, it does. I, I was just
3: very confused.
1: And yeah.
4: I didn't. I didn't miss mass, so that wasn't. You know, I, I mean, that was. That wasn't. And I message. wasn't accusing
2: you either, dear. <laughs> <laughs>
4: well, anyway, I appreciate your help so much. Thank okay,
2: you. be at peace. That's the big thing. You can't control your your uh, confessors.
1: <laughs> Eight three. <clears throat> 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. John is in Washington, D.C., listening on Guadalupe Radio. John, you're on with Colin Donovan. Yeah, I was reading a uh, Catholic introduction to Dante's purgatory with a group recently, and I noticed that the author made the comment in the introduction that not only can the souls in purgatory pray for us, but they also pray for themselves, and it was that second part that mm-hmm. struck me, because I had never heard that before. Can you comment on that?
2: Yeah, I, I don't think that's to be the case. Uh, they're there to be purified, uh, and one way of being purified, I think, is to have any get rid of any inordinate attachment to one's own good for, for out of love for others. So I think they pray abundantly for others, but uh, I've heard that asserted a few times, but uh, although I think Dante uh, tried to follow scholastic theology uh, as he knew it in writing that, uh, I'm not sure that he he hit the mark there on that one. Uh, so that's generally not what you uh, what you read.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833 288 Three nine eight six. Next stop is New Orleans, Louisiana. Ernest is listening on the Almighty six ninety in New Orleans on Catholic Community Radio. Ernest, you're on with Colin Donovan.
3: You got that right, sir. Queen New Orleans.
2: <laughs>
3: uh, listen, I, I have a two part question. One takes me from Thessalonians four about having a debate with my friend about the rapture, mm-hmm. which I don't believe. But it it took me, it told me to go to to chapter 12 in the book of Revelation, and I'm telling him that that's Mary, and that's Jesus, and that's Michael, and the devil, and he's saying uh, it's a a
4: metaphor
3: from Israel. Now, uh, what, what do, do you say about that, and what sure. do you say about, uh, what do they call that thing? Uh,
2: the rapture? They
3: call it the heaven, the rapture, that's right.
2: it. yeah. Well, first of all, those who speak of it, uh, usually with regard to an elaborate timeline of, uh, of regarding the end of history, Uh, usually in order to find room in the end of history for a thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth, not understanding what is meant by the thousand years in the book of Revelation, they end up having to assert that the reign of Christ on earth is preceded by a rapture, a taking away, a seizing up of the just to Christ in heaven as the earth is punished with the you know, wars, persecutions, the Antichrist, and so on, and then they come back with him to reign. And there are different views on this, and there are different views of when this happens, pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, mid-tribulation. I mean, there's elaborate theories. They can't agree among themselves with regard to their theory, but the Church's theory is very clear. And this is true in the Catholic Church as well as in the Eastern churches, Orthodox and Catholic, such as the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, the Copts, and the others. All of those whose roots are in the first millennia of Christianity, even though they may have been loosely uh, aligned with Rome or they broke communion with Rome as the Greek Orthodox did. All of them agree with this, that all of those events described are when Christ comes to judge the living and the dead and that there will be no advantage to those who are alive on the earth to those who have died in terms of their resurrection and they will be with christ forever and where will they be not on this material earth as we know it now but in the new heavens and the new earth as is christ promised And that will be the eternal reign of God in heaven and in creation. So this for the church is for the end of the world only. Most of these ideas, although there may have been one or two in the early church who had some fanciful ideas along this line, was not the opinions of the fathers and doctors of the church or the councils or anything, but came along in the beginning of the 1800s. Some even say that a Jesuit in Chile was the source of the idea and then somebody ran with it and entered into the commentaries of English language Bibles and from there it is spread and you get the different uh, dispensational and, and other theologies which speak on this area. But until then, there was unanimity even in the mainline churches that this was referring to Christ's return. Thus, the early The early creeds of the church, so the second century baptismal creed of Rome, we better know by the uh, apostles, know as the Apostles' Creed, and then the third and the fourth century creeds from Nicaea and Constantinople, which we know simply as the Nicene Creed, we say it at Mass on Sunday, says that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. That's it. That's the end of history. That's the coming that is described in, uh, you know, in the Gospel of Matthew, in the kingdom parables, in all the parables regarding the, you know, the, uh, the unwise virgins and so on, that the, the bridegroom will come when you least expect it, and that's it. You're out. If you're not among his company, you're out. That's it. That's eternity in hell. So this is the unanimous opinion of Catholics, Orthodox, and even most Protestant denominations, and the mainline ones, certainly, up until the 19th century invention of this other theology, of which there is really no agreement between different groups of them, and they end, argue it endlessly. So um, I would be, need to, it would be need to ask him, what is he, why does he think this opinion has any authority? you know, what would be the basis of the authority of it when Christians for 1800 previous years see this as he will come to judge the living and the dead, end of it. That's the end of history. So this is an outlier. Uh, it's popular in the United States and other countries where American-based churches have spread it, but is not at all consistent with the long historical Christian. Uh, a tradition of christian christianity in terms of interpreting either the book of revelation or that passage in second thessalonians 4 which is virtually unanimous among uh in east and west and even as i said in the main protestant groups
1: as in the days of noah huh yes the righteous were the ones that were left behind
2: to suffer and the other part of that is uh if your theology doesn't recognize the cross. And it says, you know, prosperity and joy and happiness and peace and blessings on earth is is the goal of the Christian life. There's none of that in the gospel. Jesus said, if they do this to the Greenwood, what will they do with the? Yeah, yeah that's us. We're not the Greenwood. We will go through all the trials and tribulations, and then He will come. We're not excused from it. We're not raptured out as if we're, you know, some paragons of virtue that need to be plucked out of this. No, we are united to Christ in his suffering, and and we will be united with him even more in those days, whether they're 50 years or 500 years from now. Uh, So I think that's the true Christian message in in this particular case.
1: Next, we head to the great state of Idaho. Grace is a first-time caller listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Grace, you're on with Colin Donovan.
4: Hi, can you hear me all right? I'm I'm on my car phone here.
2: I do. Go ahead.
4: Hi. so I have a question mine is also a question about marriage Um, I have an older son Mm -hmm. as a teenager he left the faith Um, through speech old he pretty much lost his faith very young maybe 14 Um, he is a son from an annulled marriage and there was a lot of trials and tribulations so we had a fractured relationship until recently so he is getting married um outside the church, and my question is, I have heard conflicting advice from priests and lay people on whether or not I can attend the marriage. He was baptized and confirmed, but um, he's made it very known if I don't attend the marriage, uh, it could it, it would go very badly for our relationship. So that is yeah. my question,
2: yeah. And you have not been alone in this, and many others have gone before you. And you're likely to continue to hear various approaches to this. Um, I, I've, I think from the, from the canonical point of view, if you just go by what the law says, yes, it would be going to a marriage whose validity is at best questioned. There is an obstacle to his marriage called uh, his Catholic faith. He is a member of the Catholic faith. Um, he, by, Because of that uh, membership, he is obliged to marry in the church or be dispensed to be married in some other situation, or as I described earlier in the program, with people who are not of the Catholic faith. So that's an obligation he has. And as you've noted, and this has been the case in many cases, many cases in the last 50 years, people leave the church at a young age. They don't formally leave the church, but for all practical purposes, they are out of the church. Some and many solid Orthodox canonists have suggested that this obligation called obligation of form, which hasn't been always in use in history, but was begun, applied in the United States because of the the non-Catholic environment to, to really keep catholics attached to the church but many have said this should be set aside because it's really the only obstacle to their marriage naturally a man and a woman who make the vows with the right intentions of unity and procreation not excluding either of those ends of marriage married validly you know you just pick two people off the street if they did that they'd be validly married assuming they weren't married to somebody else beforehand so many have argued for that in a particular case you would have a strong argument that that ought to be his case, even though the church doesn't say that today. And I think that's why you will find many priests who say, well, you should go to keep the attachment there because in this way you won't turn him totally against the faith. And even Mother Angelica would say this, that, well, you have to decide if you think that is the case, go but not take a prominent role have a muted role or something like that where you're not you're not affirming the situation but you're you're showing up because you're his mother and so um he i assume he knows that you're not happy with the situation and you make those protestations and then you do that on the other hand i've heard the opposite approach by people who have said i made it clear to my son or daughter you don't marry in the church, I won't be at your wedding. And yes, it had many strained years of distance between the parents and the child. And then that broke. They were praying for them. They were keeping up that at least. We're carrying that cross of separation, obviously, with their children who didn't acknowledge them anymore. These are personal decisions. I can't make them for you. Priests and advisors can't. But I think you have to be honest about your disagreement, even when you choose to, you know, be the person, the mother in the back of the room who is there because you're not prepared to simply dispatch them to their own fate, but to show them that you 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 love them both and that you want the best for them, and you hope that one day they will recognize the the Catholic faith um, into which he was born. I don't know about the other the other party, but. So I think those are the choices that stand before you, and those are the, you know, it's, you you know him, I can't tell you what his response would be if you took the case of, you know, the rejectionary situation. And I think that's why a very clear line would be to say, no, I'm not going to do that. But obviously, some parents don't want to do that. But at the same time, they don't want to affirm that relationship in any way, any formal way. And so you have the Either you sit in the back of the church, you go to the wedding reception or something like that, but then you find yourself rejoicing or making merry of the situation, too. So uh, it's a hard decision to make, but only you can make it.
1: God bless you, Grace. We'll keep you in our prayers, to be sure. Um, Be sure to check out Register Radio Saturday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern. It's the official radio program of the National Catholic Register. This week, the Archdiocese of Los Angeles is mourning the loss of Bishop David O'Connell, and Senior Editor Joan Frawley Desmond shares his life story. And in addition, Jeanette DeMello and Matthew Bunsen have an Editor's Corner that highlights news of the Ukraine-Russia war and six American black Catholics on the road to sainthood. That's Register Radio Saturday afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Bill in the great state of New York, listening on Sirius XM channel 130. Bill, you're on with Colin Donovan.
3: Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I have a question. I have a question about first class relics and mm-hmm. uh, their relation to, uh, or in comparison to cremation of you know, your loved ones and keeping a, either the urn of your loved one on on a mantle uh, and venerating it like you would a first-class relic, um, my point being is, you know, I, I find a little inconsistent, or I'm questioning consistency, of a first-class relic not, you know, which is part of the body of, of the saint um, being set aside from the rest of the body, and that not being a you know, a sin against the dignity of the human body, but yet having somebody who, while not a canonized saint, I get that, uh, but somebody who we hope is a saint, uh, in a cremated state in an urn on your mantle, for instance, um, I, I just want to see if there's any inconsistencies between those two concepts. and, and the Yeah, and
2: that, uh, that's, not, that's not the point at issue, even. Uh, because the point of issue is the sacredness with which the remains are treated. Uh, the relics are treated sacredly, they're documented, they're typically given to following practices beginning in the early church of of, of the uh, relics being uh, in consecrated churches uh, to u- unite the church with, uh, with the Age of Martyrs, both during the Age of Martyrs and afterwards. Uh, relics that are created, uh, which uh, in our own day have have got, come into the personal use and possession of the of the faithful, uh, actually the Holy See has virtually ended that practice. Without a special permission and a letter from your bishop, you you can't get first class relics anymore. They're presumed to be treated with reverence, such as uh, brought out for veneration on the feast of the individual in a parish or something like this, or that they form part of the, you know, part of the altar or, or something like that. Uh, I, you can't, you simply can't venerate, you know, mom and dad's relics remains on the mantle. You simply cannot. Veneration. Uh, even of a blessed takes a formal investigation and a declaration of the pope that this person should be honored in a particular place so blessed is you know it might be take mother Teresa when she was beatified uh her the the honor of of veneration in particular places of devotion to her, of the celebration her feast day was given to her community, and the places in which her community, or if a bishop's conference or a diocese asked, particularly they'd had to justify it to. It's not given everywhere. And then with the saints, with canonization, not only does the Pope allow universal veneration, the actual form of canonization basically commands that this individual be venerated throughout the church as somebody who is in heaven quite a different situation than mom and dad or aunt susie or or, or anything else so that's that was the issue at state the uh, the, the veneration of it then with our own dead and our own cells when that day comes it is that the the body that has received the eucharist was baptism and received the sacraments and especially the eucharist during life is then treated uh with respect and respectfully buried or if cremated put in a columbarium or in other circumstances which shows an appropriate veneration even for the body of the person whom we do not yet know to be blessed or holy or a saint uh, so the thesis pretty much is not what you suggested but now You get a dichotomy there, obviously, between the way uh, relics will be handled. But Rome has tried to sort of quarter that into an official situation in the last couple decades by making it only for churches, for for, uh, ecclesiastics, or with a letter from the bishop, a, a lay person can get first class. I, myself, am one of the many people who, during that window of a decade or two when you could get first-class relics as a layperson, was privileged to get some of those. And they should be treated with respect, uh, as you would in a parish church. So uh, that would be the d- distinction there. Um, particular practices, obviously, are are prohibited by the church, the spreading of the remains of our relatives on mountain sides or in the ocean, uh, as opposed to whole burial in the ocean, which of course the navies of the world do and uh, can be done. Um, there have been some examples of that being done for private individuals after, uh, outside of wartime. But that's those are unique circumstances. So I think the tri- the treatment is consistent when you take an account. Uh, The principles and the distinction between the saints and the blessed and the ordinary Catholic presumed to be in the state of grace, receiving a funeral, and being buried appropriately in a columbarium or in the ground.
1: Quickly, we'll head to Maureen. I have a daughter named Catherine, and today is the feast of her patron, St. Catherine Drexel. And Maureen is calling us from Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. Maureen, you're on with Colin Donovan.
2: Hi, how are you, Colin? I'm doing good, Maureen. What's your question today? My
4: my question is, in the last month or two, I either read or I heard on Catholic radio that the only sin that is unforgivable is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and I had never heard that before in my life, and I've been alive a long time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether that was accurate.
2: Yes, because our Lord basically says that. He says, if you sin against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven you. But if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, it will not be given you. And here's, here's the logic of that. Christ came in his mission. Men could believe or disbelieve that he was the Christ. They could, they could be forgiven that. But the job of the Holy Spirit, if you will, or the mission as a theologian outside the Trinity of the Holy Spirit as one of the persons of the Trinity is our sanctification and our glorification. Now, while we are alive, we can, we can renounce our blasphemy of any kind. But the Church understands this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as the final act of the individual. And it can be of two kinds. It could be despair my sins are so horrid that I'm unforgivable in which case they are basically saying to God and to Christ okay you came to earth you sent your son to earth and you came to earth and you sent the Holy Spirit to sanctify not going to work for me that is quite different and the other one of course would be where they say I'm not interested in your grace and repudiate the possibility of their own forgiveness, and they reject it entirely. Those are basically things that can occur when that final moments of life are present, and so those are not forgivable, and you can think of it as a psychologist would. They fix themselves in that position, and they're not moving from it.
1: On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Gubensky and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Person. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again on Monday. Until we get together then, God bless.